0: Hello and welcome to Filibustering History, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. From this snowy rust belt, I am Rob Denning, the lead faculty for the history programs at Southern New Hampshire University's College of Online and Continuing Education. Joining me from the non-snowy, non-rust Belty Bay Area is my SNHU colleague James Fennessy, the Associate Dean of Faculty for History. Today, James and I are talking to Ryan Tripp who is based in the similarly non-snowy, rust belty Bay Area. Well, it's, it's not really the San Francisco Bay, more of the Sassoon Bay Area. Anyway, he's in Northern California somewhere. Today we are talking to Ryan about a presentation that he has recorded for our sister podcast called History Soundbites. We're going to talk about his background and his research interests a bit, and then we'll talk about the process behind the presentation. We will try not to spoil the full presentation here. I don't think we'll need a spoiler alert, but I guess it wouldn't hurt. So potential spoiler alerts
1: ahead. So what is your name and what do you do? My name is Ryan Tripp. I'm an adjunct history faculty at SNU and several other online colleges, as well as face-to-face Northern California community colleges. I'm also a podcast host for the New Books Network, the, their Native American history channel and I serve on the editorial committee and, starting next term, contribute articles to FACTS, which is the California Faculty Community College's journal. In terms of before this, I was an associate instructor, basically a lecturer at UC Davis, while I was completing my graduate coursework in history.
0: Obviously, you went to UC Davis, but can you tell us a little bit about your uh, overall background?
1: Sure. I received my BA in It's actually the Anthropology of Law, so Legal Studies and Anthropology from UC Berkeley. And then I received an MA in History um, on a Jacques Hyman Fellowship at San Francisco State University. And just three years ago, I uh, matriculated from UC Davis uh, with a Ph.D. in History. In addition to uh, archival research and uh, narrative writing, et cetera, et cetera, my PhD um, in history at UC Davis included coursework and fieldwork in linguistic anthropology, as well as indigenous archaeology, the UC Davis anthropology department, Native American studies department, and also transfer credit from the University of Connecticut in indigenous archaeology.
2: So, as somebody with such deep roots in the West Coast and in California, how did you come to be fascinated by um, indigenous people in the Northeast?
1: Really, this has to do sort of with my intellectual biography, if you want to call it that, which kind of springs from a personal interest in my family background. My uh, great aunt uh, was a genealogist for an insurance company, I believe title insurance. And before this and during her career, she researched uh, and why, she, how she became came to become a genealogist for an insurance company is a long, sad story. But um, she researched our family history back to a John Tripp, who is my direct great, 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 et cetera, grandfather and my father's, my own father, my deceased father's uh, namesake. And this John Tripp was a 17th century indentured servant in colonial Rhode Island as well as a militiaman in King Philip's War. He uh, served in the capture of the Wampanoag uh, Chief Sachem uh, Medical Met at the end of King Philip's War in New England around 1675, 1676. It actually goes a couple years after that. And we actually, my, my family, so that isn't just genealogical work. We actually have what amounts to material culture and correspondence from um, the 17th century, including a rug, which was uh, knit together, which depicts scenes from King Philip's War. I became interested in that particular subject, actually, as well as an apparent dichotomy between Narragansett country agrarian historiography and Narragansett country ethno-history, so that, that's sort of the, the dual influences, again, is this material culture and this correspondence that my family has, as well as my great aunt's tangential genealogical work in our, my own family history and in, the, in colonial New England. And that's really, during my childhood, how I became interested in New England and native history. At first, I focused pretty exclusively on eastern woodland Algonquin, and more specifically kind of Narragansett ethno-history. But during my uh, second year preliminary dissertation presentation at UC Davis, I drew a map. We actually present our, our preliminary proposals to our cohort, so to my graduate peers who were in the same classes as I was. And I drew a map on the chalkboard for my, this cohort to visualize the 18th century Narragansett Reserve my graduate peers asked about the large because i also drew or attempted to to chart proximate territory around the reserve in the 18th century my graduate peers kept on asking about the large farms that surrounded the perimeter of this reserve and afterwards partially thanks to my own family's involvement in the 1709 narragansett land resales i engaged in extensive primary and secondary source research and what i realized were substantial arguably the most substantial British provisioning grounds for transnational Greater Caribbean plantations during the 18th century. I also realized the importance of maritime merchants, I mean some of the farmers and merchants were one and the same, who carried the provisions from Rhode Island to the Greater Caribbean and across the Atlantic world. So this trade generated a pretty compelling cultural system in southern New England, that in turn precipitated, like, land vakes, other economic institutions, various trusteeships, as well as economic divisions across Rhode Island, in addition to boundary disputes with neighboring colonies like Connecticut. Connecticut, at one point, claimed the so-called Narragansett country. During my preparations for comprehensive exams at UC Davis, I also read theses from an array of U.S. and world historical studies, I noticed that these historians emphasized uh, that the trajectory of such cultural systems and economies often develop in fits and bursts, rather than kind of in a linear teleology, a linear causation. It's more fits and bursts. So I decided to begin my study of the Greater Caribbean or West Indian provisioning trade in the 17th century and my study of Narragansett ethnohistory prior to the European cultural encounter. Aiming to determine if, when, and where historical actors' perspectives on both the provisioning trade and uh, Narragansett uh, intertwined and even coalesced. Of course, the labor base for uh, large, moderate, and I guess even small composite farms in southern Rhode Island often included varieties of servitude and enslavement, which prompted me to research linkages between the provisioning trade the Rhode Island captive and chattel slave trades in various ports, as well as this greater Caribbean uh, seasoned slave trade. Finally, during my prospectus defense, two committee members, uh, specifically Clarence Walker, Professor Clarence Walker, who's emeritus now, and Professor Alan Taylor, who's at the University of Virginia now, questioned the influence of changes and continuities in monarchical cultures, religious movements, and international doctrines on this provisioning trade cultural system, as well as Narragansett ethno-history. Fortunately, in the last few years, historians have sort of bore witness to an explosion of studies on comparative monarchy, as well as the Great Awakening and global legal and, and political ideas. So in this context, I began researching and writing what would become my dissertation on a Narragansett tribal governance and plantation provisioning politics. I do have secondary research projects, um, which also spring from a personal interest in my family history. I want to emphasize history and just in general family history in various fields. For example, in the early 20th century, my uh, paternal great-grandparents migrated from New England to California and Peru. My uh, paternal grandmother, who was involved in mestizo theater when she was a child and then became a mestizo modernist. She gave birth to my father in 1945 Lima and immigrated to the United States nearly a decade later. I recently digitized my paternal family records from Second Bank of the United States petitions and Civil War era New Bedford city guard daguerreotypes to my grandfather, the, the husband of my grandmother, his good neighbor photography and uh, my own great-great-grandfather's printer records for John Wilson and Son, uh, University Press in Cambridge, which was actually taken down by uh, the present-day Harvard University Press at the turn of the 20th century. In contrast, my maternal great-grandparents emigrated from Prince Edward Island and Scotland to the United States in the early 20th century during the 1920s. I'm currently compiling the writings and material cultures of my maternal great-great-grandfather, who was actually the fifth premier of Prince Edward Island, whose attempts to reconcile labor progressivism, what he described as labor progressivism, with liberal conservatism culminated in his 1891 and then 1892 resignation and the, creation, and the ultimate creation on Prince Edward Island of unicameral legislature there. Um, and for those of listeners that are unfamiliar with uh, Prince Edward Island, it was made, it's sort of entered popular consciousness through the Anne of Green Gables novels. I'm also researching the Prince Edward Island public sphere during the 19th century, particularly for accounts of my Irish great-great-great-grandfather, who was an, uh, an immigrant merchant. Uh, so the father, the grandfather of uh, the premier's wife, who was an immigrant merchant, who similarly attempted to co- like my like my great great grandfather attempted to cohere opposition to the agrarian tenant league movement in Prince Edward's Island, with a leadership role among urban and rural impoverished Irish Catholics during the 1847 Belfast riot on the island. So that's sort of where I'm at in terms of research and. And a lot of it does have to do, not so much with my heritage, but with an interest in the uh, topic of family history applied to uh, various historical actors, including members of my own, if you want to call it family or people related to me.
0: That's a really exactly. impressive knowledge of your family history. My, my, I'm a little bit jealous because my family has no records of any kind. The, the most I know of is that my grandparents came from Missouri and they at one point were in New Mexico because that's where my mom was born, and that's pretty much all I know about my family background. So this is really impressive that you have that much knowledge of what your ancestors were doing, you know, two or 300 years ago.
1: It helps that my great-aunt was actually a paid genealogist for an insurance company, so she she did this on the side. But, I mean, again, genealogy is related to but distinct from history, as as I learned pretty quickly.
0: And so one of the things that uh, we're... Talking to you about today is because you have recently recorded a presentation for us. This presentation was—is it based on your family knowledge, or wh- where did the or where did the idea for this presentation come from, and
1: what are you doing with it? So the presentation is based off of the fifth chapter of my dissertation. It's focused actually on—it's a little bit of a bio on Matthew Robinson, who's an attorney for Narragansett Peoples and. It, also, an anti-slavery advocate that um, I encountered just during the, re- the the course of my preliminary dissertation research through second a couple of secondary sources, again mention him as a attorney during the 18th century who helped people on the margins of colonial society, and then anti-slavery. And I actually began to when my dissertation got to the finally got to the 18th century. I started researching him, and I realized that there was a whole kind of 19th century sort of an 1800s historiography on Matthew Robinson. At first, that I, I felt it differed pretty. I mean, there was there. I mean, the way 19th century both hagiographers and self-described historians were describing him was different than what had been mentioned. Again, in brief passages, there's not there's no like full on book on Matthew Robinson or anything like that, but it seemed different. I soon realized that I soon could reconcile the two, and the presentation is about how these these 19th century understandings of maybe the memory of Matthew Robinson, and then our present understandings of uh, Matthew Robinson, that the memory was rooted in actual research, and I actually brought these two different things together and again in the 19th century he was actually looked at as kind of a bibliophile kind of pedantic and also a little a, a provisioning trade farmer with kind of a, a not really in a sprawling estate it's only 800 acres that's sort of how he was known as and it was interesting because passages in uh, secondary sources that I was reading for my dissertation usually these Present-day historical studies refer to him, again, as an anti-slavery advocate, an attorney for Narragansett peoples, and other people who live on the margins of colonial society. And so I wedded the two understandings together, I think, through the lens of the provisioning trade and also varieties of monarchy and cultures of monarchy and how it was affecting any kind of enlightenment that was going on in Rhode Island during the early and uh, mid-1700s. So uh, the presentation, again, is a bio of Matthew Robinson, really, um, an intellectual bio of Matthew Robinson. So, so it takes you through contexts that I use for my dissertation, situations that I use for my dissertation, and then applies it to research on Matthew Robinson. And I had to go th- and I, I, I checked, I had, I had to do some social history on him. Uh, he, I would argue he was a central figure in uh, the Enlightenment, uh, the America, American Enlightenments. But he hadn't been really well researched, so I had to figure out i mean there's still a couple questions that are kind of outstanding but um there's some social history in there ethno history as well, obviously with the with Narragansett peoples who were his pro bono clients and how he interfaced with them, and also his library he was famed they, these he, these nineteenth uh, century his, self described historians and antiquarians always mentioned his library and None of the present-day historians that I was looking at uh, a few years ago never mentioned his library, some library that he had, and he's supposed to be, like, renowned throughout the colonies for his, this, like, vast collection of books, and he actually signed his books when he finished reading them. He signed his books, the inside of the books, so I knew these, I had to, like, find where the books were, and it actually took a little bit of laywork on my part. And how these books affected him, i figured out that he was actually referencing, if not outright explicitly saying you know this is a cook reference reference from Cook Cook on Littleton or another book like John Locke or um, Sir Thomas Smith sometimes in the, in the case law he's actually explicitly referencing him and other times he's actually quoting passages from the from his books from his library. so that was another big component of the of the bio is his cherished library and then again his his wife, who um, was the daughter of a French Protestant uh, exile. That affected him as well. And I also kind of had to, there was some allusions that he was Quaker, but I've kind of come to the conclusion that his family was Anglican. I also had to research his father. So again, it wasn't just ethno-history and the history of ideas via the library and the case law, but also some social history on my part where I actually had to figure out what his parents did how old he was, who his wife was, when he died, etc. So you mentioned
2: secondary sources, but what's obvious from just your brief description and the presentation itself is the amount of time that it took and the amount of effort that you put into primary research as well. And that's probably something that a lot of students of history don't realize when they enter into a graduate program, at least a master's program. So can you talk a little bit about how you even get started with that process, with identifying primary sources, with where you go to find them, with what you're looking for in those primary sources, what's relevant, what isn't? Because I think that's something that a lot of students of history might struggle with, especially in the first, you know, when they're first starting their projects. There's a lot of secondary research out there for a lot of topics, but primary sources can be really difficult to come by if you don't know where to look.
1: So again, you mentioned secondary source research. I mean, there's a lot of ways of doing it. I, I have peers that do it different ways. I can tell you my how I approached my dissertation, and the way to approach research can vary slightly from topic, research topic to research topic too. But um, for this particular, for my dissertation, I did start with secondary uh, source. For let's let's just for example, Matthew Robinson. Secondary source references to Matthew Robinson. You know, there are passages to Matthew Robinson is, you know, at most it would be like two or three paragraphs in various uh, historical studies published in the last 10 or 15 years. And then after that, after I compiled them sort of in a a unified (laughs) sort of unified document and database, I actually then went out and actually had to go to archives, like from the Rhode Island Historical Society to uh, the American Antiquarian Society to the Rhode Island State Archives. And also um, online databases, online work, like government databases. I mean, there's no kind of unified the Matthew Robinson papers. Sometimes, you know, these figures are. But again, he has, again, his. I think he's central to understanding the American Enlightenment, especially in New England. But, you know, once I had done the secondary source research, re- research, I went to various archives, and I, I knew that he had, again, interfaced with clients such as Narragansett peoples, various captive and chattel slaves. And I began to look for documents and a case law having to do with Narragansett peoples and captive and, sh- and chattel slaves in uh, southern Rhode Island. And this is where the work comes in, is that you hope that at one point, you you know, you'll get to a document where Matthew Robinson is the attorney or Matthew Robinson is the correspondent or something like that. And it just took time. I mean, it was sitting there for hours going through microfilm and then suddenly you you know you hit upon a a letter written by uh matthew robinson in the case of the books which was interesting about his hopewell library which is again hadn't been discussed since the the 1800s you know i began to research in terms of secondary sources when you say secondary sources we think you know present-day historical studies, I began to actually research, again, seven, 1800s and before, secondary sources on him. And uh, some antiquarian magazines reference this Hopewell library. At the Arthro-Historical Societies, you know, I went through books and books and books trying to figure out, you know, what happened with his library and what happened, was this dismantled after he died or whatever? And i actually found out it was. And I found a couple catalogs that um, listed his books as they were being transferred from one person to another through inheritance and also through donations. The Rhode Island Historical Society, I believe, actually has a copy of his John of his John Locke uh, of the Con- Conduct of the Understanding um, signed. So that that took some legwork as well. But again, I, I mean, I have to be honest, I went through, I knew he had interfaced with certain historical actors, Narragansett peoples, captive and chattel slaves in southern Rhode Island, via case law. And I also know that he was corresponding with people like Christopher Champlin, John Jay, who became the chief justice of the Supreme Court. And I went, I had to go through their papers and hope, hopefully find References or documents signed by uh, Matthew Robinson, and he was also again anti-slavery papers too. In the papers of the American slave trade, there's you know I had to go through that, and it's not a I, I'm not I'm not going to be hyper wax hyperbolic here. It's not a, a needle in a haystack, but because I can limit the the bodies of evidence that I'm looking at, there might still be a lot out there on him. I mean I think it's an ongoing research inquiry in terms of his family history and his who he married, when he married. I do think a lot of the uh, history databases and also genealogical databases helped in that regard with birth records, marriage records, et cetera, et cetera. So.
0: so you say that there's probably still a lot more to learn about him, which makes a lot of sense. Are you going to stick with him or are you sick of this guy by now?
1: That's a great question. There's actually an article by Jill Lepore about microhistory and biography and to historians who love their subject too much. And um, so, you know, I want to be aware of that. But again, I, w- what's kind of mitigating that is that my aim here is to reconcile provisioning trade understandings of Matthew Robinson from, like, the 1800s to our present-day research on Matthew Robinson, which has him as an anti-slavery advocate and this, like, great guy who helps people on the margins of colonial society. And to try to reconcile the two or try to figure out why there's such a distinction, dichotomy between these two understandings. So that's mitigating me loving him too much and the whole notion of researching him. I think I'm going to stick with him. I'm kind of interested in him. For example, one question that remains undetermined is uh, exactly who his mother was. I'm pretty sure that the woman that I see in the records that his father married in 1824, Matthew Robinson was born, I think, prior to, excuse me, not 1824, 1724, was uh, born prior to 1724. So the woman that his father married was probably not his mother. Issues like that. Also, uh, what he was doing in retirement. He married, he actually, his wife dies. And a lot of social history stuff I'm kind of interested in. And correspondence with other people. Uh, The Rhode Island Historical Society recently found a letter from him to uh, John Jay, which I included in my presentation.
0: I was asking because um, I, I actually had kind of a similar experience when I was working on my MA thesis. I was doing it on reconstruction in California. And I started talking in one of the chapters, probably a couple more than one chapter, about California's uh, senator for the United States. His name was John Connors. He only served one term, but he was there during the final years of the Civil War and the early years of Reconstruction. And he was noteworthy to me because he was from California, but he was in favor of um, civil rights for Chinese immigrants which was in pretty short supply back in those days. (laughs) So I uh, ended up writing a article on him for, it was published in California history a few years ago. And by the time I published the article, I was a little bit tired of the guy, but in the last couple of years, I've been more, I've been interested in going back and, and kind of revisiting the topic and, seeing what more I can find about him because there's never been any biographies written about him or anything. So it was, it's just interesting to talk to other people who have kind of devoted a good amount of time to a particular person just to see if they're still interested or if they get bored of the person and want to move on to something else. It's interesting topic.
1: He's kind of a lively guy too. I mean, he's an interesting person because some of his case law is really fascinating and he's really interested. And I I kind of determined that he's sort of applying sort of European enlightenment. And I, do emphasize European Enlightenment precepts to Narragansett peoples, which is a little racial and a little more ethnocentric. And he has these kind of narratives of like what, how the Narragansett political and legal system uh, worked prior to the European cultural encounter. It's almost like he has like these like fantasy narratives of how these things like worked and how you know there's like an ancient settled and established constitution, which was basically passages quoted from cook and then arguing that the Naraga- narragansett peoples had this kind of ancient settled and established constitution and um, he even uses the word immemorial he's placed under house arrest as a uh, loyalist for adherence to limited mo- limited monarchy in uh, rhode island for three months and um he, he gets mad and calls rhode- the rhode island legal system poison and all this other stuff so
0: just to wrap up here, do you have anything to recommend to us today? A favorite book, article, artifact, something that our history audience may be interested in? Yeah,
1: yes, I, I do. I have books that I'm reading. Again, I, I work for the New Books Network. For those uh, listeners that are interested in what James Brooks calls the fragmented nature of the past, as well as the history of the study of this, these fragmentations, the history of anthropology and memory, I just read James Brooks's Mesa of Sorrows. Red Sun by Louis Warren, who's an environmental historian at UC Davis, and also Before Boas, which has to do with, you know, ethnology and ethnography in the German Enlightenment. Um, This is by Hans Vermeulen, Before Boas, and it has to do with the 1700s Enlightenment and the birth of ethnography and uh, ethnology and and linguistics in comparative linguistics in Russia and, and then in Europe, which I thought was really good. I learn a lot from other history fields I learned much from Escaping the Dark Gray City, which is uh, by Herbert Johnson, which is about progressive environmentalism. Young Derrida by Edward Baring. For my own family in New England, Brahmin Capitalism by Noam Magor. I also recently read Gareth Stedman Joseph's bio on Karl Marx. I recently read uh, Sarah Rivett's Unscripted America, which is about indigenous languages during the colonial period. It's a comparative stu- study between New England and New France, and the study of indigenous languages by missionaries. And it goes into the early republic as well. I, I actually interviewed her for my podcast. I randomly read uh, Susan Carruthers' Good Occupation, which um, is about uh, the U.S. occupation of Japan and Germany. A comparative assessment, and it it involves issues from a lot of issues on genuine sexuality, but to a lesser extent, race and ethnicity in occupying forces at the end of World War II. In terms of my favorite all time, I mean, it's kind of cross disciplinary. I remember I really, uh, really got into uh, political cultures, the history of colonialism with Timothy Mitchell's Colonizing Egypt. I don't know if any of you have read that. And then ethno history, obviously, like John Demas's Unredeemed Captive. Richard White's middle ground, the Enlightenment with, uh, you know, Jonathan Israel's um, Enlightenment trilogy, especially the radical Enlightenment. But all these topics have undergone a lot of critical revision in recent years. Finally, I'm currently reading uh, Daniel Sharfstein's, and I'm going to interview both of them for my podcast. I'm currently reading Daniel Sharfstein's Thunder in the Mountains, which is about the head of the uh, Freedmen's Bureau, O.O. Howard, his post freedmans Bureau career and his War on Native Peoples in uh, Montana and Wyoming. I'm also currently reading Lisa Brooks, Her New History of King Philip's War, which, again, has to do with my family, um, Our Beloved Kin. I actually have an advanced copy of that that I'm currently uh, reading. So those books and all those, I mean, I guess my, in short, recommendation would be to keep your mind open to various fields and various influences and for the history of anthropology, I would go with James Brooks, Louis Warren, and Hans Vermulen.
0: That's great. And I will post a link to your podcast episode in the episode notes for this episode here.
1: All right. Thank
2: you.
0: Certainly. Uh, James, do you have any recommendations for us this week?
2: Well, as I was unpacking recently, I came across what I would like to refer to as a classic. A close friend of mine and lecturer at Trinity College in Dublin in 2014 published... A book called Catholics of Consequence, Transnational Education, Social Mobility, and the Irish Catholic Elite from 1850 to 1900. Kieran O'Neill is his name. This is a really great study about... Irish Catholics during this period sending their children to elite Catholic schools um, on the continent or in England and the social issues that this created, but also once you have this revival of Irish nationalism toward the later part of this period, how Catholics who didn't have these opportunities or the Irish who didn't have these opportunities viewed this segment of the population. So I won't give anything away on that, but it really is a great study and Kieran O'Neill is a fantastic researcher and intellectual, So. I I highly recommend this book if you're interested at all in the history of education or the Irish.
0: That sounds great. I had a uh, recommendation lined up, but actually our conversation today got me thinking of something else. So I'm just going to completely shift gears and go back to something that I also rediscovered recently. It's a book called The Rivals, William Gwynn, David Broderick, and the Birth of California by Arthur Quinn. Uh, this was published back in the back in the 90s, I believe. It's an older book, but it's yeah, 1994. It's a little bit older, but it, but it's a really interesting story, especially for people that are interested in early California history. William Gwynn and David Broderick were among the first generation of people that came to California and got engaged in America, California politics, and they both ended up on opposite sides of the political spectrum. But since California was basically run by the Democratic Party back in the 1850s when these guys were active. They were both in the same party, but they represented very different um, ideologies. And their fight within the party got worse and worse and worse, eventually to the point where one of William Gwynn's supporters challenged David Broderick, who was a senator to the U.S. Senate from California, challenged him to a duel and killed him. And so California politics got very, very violent in the 1850s. And this book tells the story of that violence. It's written by Arthur Quinn, who is a a journalist, I believe, or an English professor, not a historian, but he still does a pretty good job presenting the historical context and all of that. And so the story of this this political fight between William Gwynn and David Broderick early in California history, which eventually evolved into an assassination, uh, tell, is, is a pretty riveting story. And it's something that kind of has been lost from our... Discussions of the 1850s, since there's national stuff going on that's much more dramatic with Bleeding Kansas and all of that. But you know, out in California, they're still shooting each other over politics back in the 1850s. So it's an interesting read. Uh,
1: David Broderick's name, uh, like, there's several restaurants now. I think there's a chain now in Sacramento called Broderick's, that's named after him. And uh, oh, really? Is, uh, yeah. Although the summation of his life on the wall is not is not really from what I've read about him. But anyways, I don't know. I wanted thought you should know that. It's
0: no, cool. that's interesting. I'll have to check that out next time I'm there. I mean, <laughs> he has a fascinating life story. I mean, he's, he's Irish. I believe he was born in Ireland, and he initially was, he grew up in New York as part of the Irish uh, immigrant community there in New York, and he was part of the firefighters, or he was a firefighter. And there's all kinds of stories about the way firefighting companies operated in New York back in the 1840s and 1850s, where these were basically excuses for gangs to get together and beat the hell out of each other. Yeah. And he, when he moved to California, he kind of brought that version of politics with him. The uh, His opponent, William Gwynn, he was a Southerner, and he had kind of the more cultured view of American politics where, you know, everything is genteel and proper whereas David Broderick brought his bare-knuckle New York-Irish firefighting instincts with him and employed a much more aggressive and assertive brand of politics, which eventually got him shot.
2: Well, it sounds like we should look to a a future reconvening of this group at a Broderick's in Sacramento when we're all in California, and we can walk around and look at the various um, artifacts that are on the wall and reminisce about his political career. That sounds awesome. (laughs) All
0: right, we'll see if we can work that out. Yeah, we'll try to get it in the budget. Yeah, great. All right, well, Ryan, thank you for joining us today. All right, thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, please send me an email at snhuhistorygmail.com. At also, be sure to check out Dr. Tripp's presentation on Matthew Robinson in our History Soundbite series. For James Fennessy and Ryan Tripp, I'm Rob Denning. Have a good day.